Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. Uh, our theme is investing in our planet, and we will continue to give the world a voice by celebrating Earth Day, by lifting up our, that theme. Uh, I am Larry Lane White, your host, and alongside with me today are my fellow climate active advocates, uh, Reverend Alan Jenkins and Reverend Michael Malcolm. Reverend Malcolm, I want to start with you. Please talk just a little bit about your work and what you do as an activist in your community. Yeah, I, so I'm Michael Malcolm. I am the founder and executive director of the People's Justice Council, as well as the executive director of Alabama Interfaith Power and Light, based here in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm also the uh, environmental justice minister for the United Church of Christ on Southeast Conference. Uh, and so uh, that's my work and I am fully um, covered and, and, and overcome and overwhelmed in, in the environmental space and I mix environmental justice and faith. Uh, Alan, I'm going to let you uh, talk a little bit about uh, the work that you do. Thank you for being with us tonight. All right, great to be back. It's been a it's been a minute, as they say, and uh, so I'm delighted to be here. Thank y'all so much. Uh, yeah, so I uh, was the first person ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA to a ministry of creation care, environmental justice, um, and uh, that didn't pay very well. So after about six years, <laughs> I got tired of fundraising. Uh, I've been a, a hospital and hospice chaplain from. Grady to Gwinnett Medical to Atlanta Medical in a hospice chaplain there uh, up until last year when I have uh, received movement from the Holy Spirit and perhaps a little bit of push. And I am moving forward with a long-term vision that I've had for a long time. And that is to uh, farm some family land, which is east of Atlanta in near Rutledge or in Rutledge, Georgia, just uh, just this side of Madison, Georgia, about 45, 50 miles outside of downtown Atlanta, out I-20 East. And um, so, but my training has been uh, theology and particularly the intersection of faith and, um, and, and environment, you know, eco-theology, we call it. And um, and uh, so I, I'm not a I'm not a farmer uh, yet. So that's what I'm doing. I'm actually up here right now in Maryland. I'm in Havre de Grace, just outside of Baltimore, and where I'm learning on an organic regenerative farm that sequesters carbon, that builds up soil, creating resilience to climate uh, to catastrophe, uh, resilience to drought and and flooding, and creating healthy food for communities. So I uh, hope to take these uh, lessons back in October when I return later this year. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, thank you. And thank you both for being here. Uh, I really want to uh, get into tonight's discussion. And, and since the very first Earth Day celebration on April 22nd, 1970, people from all over the world have joined together to raise climate awareness with the hope of protecting the earth for future generations. Tonight's discussion will uh, certainly uh, be a part of that uh, celebration as we go into uh, celebrating our earth and investing in our earth for the year 2022. 
Our connection to the earth should be the topic of how we spend each and every day awarded to us. This is the month of April and over 100 million people around the world will celebrate and honor earth. We must restore our earth, not just because we care about the natural world, but because we live on it. Every one of us, each one of us, every one of us needs a healthy earth to support our jobs, our livelihood, health and survival and happiness. What is the faith community's response? What are some ways that we can all do our part? Reverend Malcolm will start why don't you start by giving us a perspective on environmental racism? Now you do a lot of work um, in, in your in your organizations and in your your public speaking on environmental racism. Can you um, just for my my viewers who may not understand the true magnitude or the true definition of environmental racism? Can you um, give a a definition and, and just kind of give your perspective? I'd love to hear both of you give your perspective on environmental racism and its effect on communities. Yeah, so I, I'd, I'd like to give um, this perspective both from a domestic standpoint and an international standpoint uh, and look at environmental racism in both, in both uh, ways because we oftentimes here in our domestic or in our national stance or perspective don't tend to look internationally at environmental racism. But environmental racism simply is that um, not every community suffers the same. Not every community carries environmental burden the same. Those of us who are black and brown and indigenous, uh, those of us who are in uh, poor rural communities uh, tend to suffer more than those who are uh, upper echelon uh, white, uh, uh, communities or households. In fact, uh, Dr. Robert Bullard would say one in five households, black households live um, next to uh, uh, toxic pollutant facility. Uh, and, and so uh, it shows that the burden that we carry for the environmental uh, pollution, the environmental burdens, the environmental degradation happens to us first and worst. Uh, and that's what environmental racism is. And when we look at it on a global scale, that's domestic, but when you look at it on a global scale, you'll see that though that what I said with the uh, color spectrum, if you will, or, or the racial component, if you will, it doesn't change even when you look at it from an international perspective. Those of us who are black, brown, indigenous, uh, we are the ones in our communities, even on an international scale, who uh, do the least harm, but suffer the most. Uh, Reverend Jenkins, I know you have plenty to say about environmental racism. Would you please share, please share. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, my, my first experience with environmental racism was in, 1995, I was taking a sociology slash theology course at Presbyterian College in South Carolina, small liberal arts school. And we traveled to Honduras to learn about first world models of development. And 
our professor introduced us to unionized uh, labor on a Chiquita banana plantation, the most fertile soil in all of Honduras, where people go hungry every day. But that soil was long since um, confiscated through murder, massacres, rape, and pillage from indigenous peoples uh, by the what was then called the United Fruit Company and the Standard Fruit Company. And uh, with the help of, of the CIA, with the United States military training, um, these power structures and land and land inequality was able to be maintained. And that's what's now Chiquita Banana. So Chiquita Banana has has land all over Latin America. So we got to meet with these workers and, and the workers shared with us their conditions and uh, specifically the environmental racism. I mean, it's just fraught with environmental racism that we think nothing of when we go and get bananas off the shelf at the grocery store. But these workers demonstrated to us how they would hide beneath the big banana leaves early in the morning when they were out there, you know, right at the, at the break of dawn and the crop dusters would come through unannounced with Dow chemical pesticides and chemical fertilizers and they wouldn't warn the workers who were already out in the field working. And so they shared with us about the eye irritations, the headache, the, the headaches that they would receive uh, with these chemicals raining down on them, the vomiting, the disproportionate cancer rates in those communities. And we later learned that one of the chemicals that Dow Chemical was using, uh, well, Chiquita Banana was getting this chemical from Dow Chemical, uh, was impotence in the men. Um, one of these chemicals was creating impotence in the men. Um, so uh, that's just one example. But, you know, we could go uh, to Atlanta. We could go uh, to the town of Ahmad Aubrey. Uh, which has the highest concentration of uh, Superfund toxic waste sites in in Georgia, uh, down there in Brunswick, Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, uh, the lists are, are are endless and and convicting. Uh, yeah. 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 And, and exacerbated the crisis. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm I continue to be in awe on, on the the notion of. Uh, Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Racism, environmental yeah. racism. The re the reason why I was very uh, keen on on letting you all know that I my history or my legacy is tied to the United Church of Christ is because the United Church of Christ uh, is the first one to coin that phrase environmental racism. It I see. It was Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis who coined that phrase. The United Church of Christ put out the very first report uh, on environmental racism or environmental justice. Period. Uh, called "Toxic Waste and Race." Uh, okay. And and then it was then on followed up by Dr. Bullard and 
and, and Dr. Wright, and, and they took it and, and um, began to write more about it. And Dr. Wright, uh, Dr. Bullitt has written more books uh, okay. and written more on environmental justice than any other uh, scholar. And so he's been deemed the uh, father of environmental justice. So on that note, um, we're going to sign off for now. I want to encourage everyone to follow us on Facebook, and Instagram, and LinkedIn. And don't forget about our social justice camp for kids. We're going into year three. If you want to know more information about that, um, you can uh, log on to our website. It's www.socialjusticecampforkids.com. And now I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to us and giving this world a helping us to give this world a voice uh, as we continue to advocate uh, for um, the, the advocate for climate crisis. And I leave you with those famous words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He says that he said that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We're tied to a single garment of destiny, our destiny. So whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. And on that note, I want to say good night and have a great day.